Today is Easter Sunday, and I want to talk to you about the moment the world changed forever. And you know, sometimes you turn on the news or a promotion for something, and they will broadcast, this is the moment the world has changed, and this big news story or this big event. And a couple minutes later, something else really big comes on, and everything's got to be the next big thing, and, and the thing that will change your life forever. And at some point, we just sort of, our eyes glaze over, and we kind of tune out, okay, whatever. And so it's easy when we come together to have that attitude. Really? The moment the world changed forever? Is it really that big of a deal? Today, my goal is to impress upon you the truth that the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly has changed the world forever. And it is above and beyond every other event and every other moment in all of the history of the world. It is the moment that has truly changed the world forever. Because something happened that day. Something was accomplished that day. And I want to look at that moment and exactly what was accomplished. But I think in order to look at that, we have to believe that a change is necessary and then that a change is even possible. Because I think it's easy also to look at the world and say, it is what it is. Can it really change? I think sometimes it's easy to look in a mirror and think, I am what I am. Can I really change? Or maybe we look at the person sitting next to us or across the table and we think, they are what they are. Can they really change? I want to share with you a story that shows just how possible change is. Even even just in the slightest moment from somebody getting involved. The story goes that a teacher was called to visit a boy in the hospital. This child had been in the hospital for a long time and and was not getting out anytime soon. And so in an effort to help him to keep up with his schoolwork, the school decided to send a teacher every day to tutor him. And so this teacher was willing to go. And her job was to teach grammar. And on this particular day, she had to go over the the vibrant, wonderful topic of adverbs and nouns. And so she showed up to the hospital, found the room where the boy was, and she walked into the room. And when she did, her jaw just about hit the floor. This boy was burned over 90% of his body. And she could tell from the look in his eyes and the way he was sort of trying to get comfortable that he was hurting physically and emotionally. And in that moment, the thought struck her I've got to teach him about nouns and adverbs when he's in such agony. Like, What good could this possibly do? She fumbled through the lesson, knowing she wasn't doing a great job because she just was struggling for the words to say. She left, she went home, she was in tears, just agony, thinking, is this really all I can do to help? Something has to be done to help this boy. She showed back up the, the next day to the hospital, and, and again, she just didn't know what to say or what to do. And as she walked in, dejected, one of the nurses stopped her and said, what did you say to that boy yesterday? She said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know what to say. I, I didn't really know how to interact with him. I tried to go over the lesson, and the nurse stopped her and said, no, no, you don't understand. Ever since yesterday, the boy has changed. We've been worrying about him for a long time. He's he's been completely dejected and just hopeless and struggling. And yet ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. 
He's fighting back against the pain and against the problem. He's responding to the treatments. It's as if something has happened and he has decided to live. And the teacher thought, wow, nouns and adverbs are pretty powerful. (laughs) She went back in. She taught him again. And every day she continued to go back. A few weeks later, she asked him, what happened? You're different. And he explained to her, I thought that I was going to die. He said, but they wouldn't send a teacher to teach me nouns and adverbs. If I was going to die, somebody must have thought that I was going to live. And if they thought I was going to live, then that gave me hope. And hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? Hope changes situations. And that's what I want to talk about today in this moment that changed the world forever. That moment is about hope. And hope is powerful. On Friday night, here at our Good Friday service, we read from Matthew the account of Jesus dying on the cross. And so now I would like to read the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, about the resurrection. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn to Matthew chapter 28. Because in this passage, we find the hope of the world. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath... At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings. He said, they came to him, clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And scripture records that in the 40 days to follow, he appeared to over 500 different people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. If we're going to talk about hope and a moment that changed the world forever, we need to accept that the world even needs to change. Does the world need to change? Or is it okay just the way it is? I trained to be a lifeguard when I was in high school. And part of being a lifeguard, you take some basic first aid classes. And in one of these classes, we learned the Heimlich Maneuver. Anybody familiar with the Heimlich Maneuver? Anybody ever done the Heimlich Maneuver? Anybody ever had the Heimlich Maneuver done on them? I praise God that I learned the Heimlich Maneuver because I I actually did use it on my oldest daughter uh, when she was six, four. Wow. And we were walking, I've shared the story before, we were walking out of a restaurant, she had a mint in her mouth, and we were just walking and she was talking, and all of a sudden I just, you see that look in their face, she went, and it just caught, and there was no breath, there was no coughing, there was nothing. She was choking. 
And, and without even thinking, I just walked over behind her and put my arms, and boom, the, the mint went flying across the street, and we just kind of walked on. And I looked at my wife like, what just happened? <laughs> it was a scary moment. But I remember in the classes, uh, one of the things the instructor said is before you, and this is important, before you do the Heimlich maneuver on somebody, ask. It would be a little weird just to walk up this behind somebody and, you know, so you're supposed to ask. Now, of course, if somebody's truly choking, they won't be able to answer. So that's that's one of the indications. But also, you don't want to go up and just grab them because they might start fighting you. Now, somebody raised their hand and said, well, what do you do if they push you away and fight you? And I'll never forget the instructor's answer. He said, wait. Just wait. He said, in a moment, they will stop fighting. Isn't it interesting in a moment of great need that we often push away the very thing that can help us? That we fight against it? I I think sometimes, maybe this isn't true when somebody's choking, but I think sometimes we don't even think there is a need to begin with. I think more often, and this happens when people are choking, they think, oh, I've got this. I I can handle this. I, I don't need somebody to step in and to help me. We think that we're okay. So what's the state of our world right now? What would you say? I've shared before that that my major in seminary was Christianity and contemporary culture, how to study cultural trends. And I will tell you, there are trends in our culture of anxiety growing among our youth. Desperation. They call it angst. And it just grows and grows and grows. And we see this in attitudes. We see it in actions. We see it in violence. Even beyond the youth. Why is there an increasing amount of violent activities in our world? Why do we have people groups with so much tension between them? Why is there so much tension in the political realm and in the international realm? Why is it we've lost our ability to to just be civil to people we disagree with? Now, pundits, sociologists, scholars will come up with different answers for each one of those things. Well, this is why the youth are this way. This is why society's this way. I want to suggest that the answer to all of them is the same. The first is, I think in general, as a world, we don't see that there's really truly a problem. We don't want to admit it, that there is one core problem. And along with that, even if we do admit that there is a problem or multiple problems, we say, I've got this. No, no, get away. Don't touch me. I've got this. I don't need your help. The second reason, which comes directly from the first, is that we lack, as a world, hope. We are living in a vacuum of hope in this world. And it causes the youth to wonder, are things ever going to get better? It causes adults to wonder, are things ever going to get better? And when you don't think, like that boy in the hospital, if you don't think things are ever going to get better, you are being hopeless. And it's a dangerous and scary place to be. Emil Bruner once said, what oxygen is for the lungs, so is hope for the meaning of human life. Think about that. We need oxygen. And when we don't get oxygen, our body begins to shut down. We begin to gasp for air. We are crying out for it. And and Bruner is saying, that's what hope is. We need hope. Without it, we are suffocating. Now put that with the author Kurt Vonnegut, 
who's known as a postmodern author. He's looking at uh, at our contemporary world and, and situations in the world, and he writes novels based on what he sees. And he wrote a novel called Cat's Cradle. And in it, the main character is sharing with another character about a book that he wrote, or that he read. And he was so fascinated by this book, he read the whole thing in one night, and he wanted to share it with his friend. And the book had this title, and this is what made him want to read it. It's a huge title, so, so follow along. Here's the title of the book the character read. What can a thoughtful man hope for mankind on earth given the experience of the past million years? That was the title of the book. It's a book within, it's like book inception. It's a book within a book. Now, let me read that again, because this is what the character heard or saw that made him want to read the book. What can a thoughtful man hope for mankind on earth given the experience of the past million years? Now understand what this is about. This is the author making a pronouncement on society. And the character said this about that book. It doesn't take long to read the book. It consists of one word and a period. This is it. Nothing. The whole book had one word in it. Nothing. Understand what Vonnegut is saying. There's no hope. There's no hope in the world. He's looking at society, he's looking at the world, and he is proclaiming there is no hope. Now you take those two things and you put them together. On the one hand, hope is like oxygen, and without it, we are beginning to die. And you put that with the other hand, which is there is no longer hope in this world. And guess what you have? A world that needs to change. These two authors together point to the massive problem. And scripture has a name for this problem. It's called sin. And at the root of all of these social issues and at the root of all of our hopelessness is this idea of sin. The scriptures describe sin not just in terms of doing bad things. We sin when we break rules, and if we do good things, we're not sinning. It's different than that. Sin is a broken relationship with our Creator. He is the author and source of life, and when we decide to go our own way, do our own thing, that's sin. We break that relationship. And Scripture says we've all done it. We all do it. And it leads us to this dire situation that when we break this relationship with the author of life, there's only one other option. The hopeless chasing after, pursuing what ultimately ends in death. And all of the problems of the world are merely symptoms of that main problem. We are chasing after things to fill that hole that can only be filled in the relationship with our Creator God. So what can we do? We're choking. Are we going to allow someone with the answer to step in and save us? And so we come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because while we might agree that the world lacks hope and needs hope, and that hope changes things, who's to say that this is the true hope? As I was preparing for this, I thought there's kind of two main uh, options of hope in the world. One is what I would call positive thinking. This is the child that hopes they will get a puppy for Christmas. Every Christmas. Or a pony. This is somebody that's stuck in a dead-end job and, and hopes they get a new one. Now, there's no necessary information that has come to say this is going to happen. It's just 
a hope. It's a positive thought to get you through that situation. Positive thinking is good. Having that kind of hope is good. And frankly, sometimes that's all we've got. And it's good to hold on to, this is not all there is. I know something is going to change. That's good. But the truth of the matter is, positive thinking doesn't change anything. It's good. It's helpful. It's way better than the alternative. But that's not the kind of hope I'm talking about. So if there's one type of hope that's positive thinking, the other type of hope is based on truth that changes the situation. Imagine you've been diagnosed with cancer. Treatment after treatment, no remedy is found. And you go in one day to your doctor and he's so excited. And he says, sit down, I have wonderful news to share with you. A study has just been done out in California. They have found the cure for your exact type of cancer. It has a 100% cure rate. And so now you're going to travel out to California. And you know what you have between the moment you hear that news till the moment you have that remedy? You have hope. But it's not hope that's just based on maybe, possibly. It's hope based on truth. There is a truth that is entered into your situation. Which type of hope does Scripture give us? Many people would say the first one. Well, we just latched on to something that makes us feel good. But see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead... Truth came shining into the history of this world and said, there is a truth that changes everything. It is a fact. 1 Peter 1.3 puts it this way, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And all of Scripture bases our hope on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The gospel is simply this. Christ came into our situation. John 3.16, probably the most powerful and and most well-known Scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. Christ entered into our situation. So hear me, if you're here today and you're like that child in the hospital and you're thinking, no, nobody cares, it must just be hopeless. Listen, God sent His Son into your situation. He saw something that could bring hope. It is not lost. You are not lost. But more than that, He didn't just come in to show up and put His arm around us and say, hey, come on, I'll help you out a little bit. He died in our place. To take the punishment for our sins. We talked about this on Good Friday, the great exchange of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that God took our sin, our guilt, the punishment for our sin that we deserve, put it on His Son on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, He took all the punishment for our sin. He took our sin. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It says that God took all the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and gave it to us. So when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. If we've received Christ as our Savior, He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the great exchange. My wife and I were talking about this after the Good Friday service. And and I think we were at home. And and she said, I love that idea of the great exchange. She said, I think we got the better end of that deal. Amen, we got the better end of that deal. 
He died for us and gives us his righteousness. But how do we know that this is hope based on truth and not just positive thinking? Numerous gurus have come through the world and proclaimed things that are helpful in some way or another. Many books have been written that have things in them about how to better live your life, how to be more fulfilled. But what's the difference? Jesus backed up what he said. Because he didn't just die on the cross. He rose from the dead. That's the proof in history that everything he said and everything he did is true. If the problem in our life is sin, and it is, and the outcome to sin is death, and it is, then hope has to be based on something that overcame sin and death. And that's where the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ comes in. The Apostle Paul knew this. Man, he thought he had it all together. He's like some of us sometimes. I don't need help. I've got this. I've got it all figured out. I know exactly how to live in order to do the right things, say the right things, stop doing the wrong things. I'm pretty awesome. And then one day he meets the resurrected Jesus. And his entire view of the world and of himself and of happiness and of hope is shattered. And everything changed in that moment. And he wrote later on in Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 11. Listen to what he says about how he looked at the world. Listen to the change that happened in his life. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Basically, to sum it up, he's saying all that other stuff in my life, I don't want it. I see it for what it really is now, and I want nothing to do with it. Give me Christ. As a church, we're studying the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. John was a follower of Jesus. He witnessed the crucifixion, and he witnessed the resurrected Lord. He saw him come back to life. And he lived his life telling other people, and toward the end of his life, he wrote a book. We know it as the Gospel of John. Because he wanted to make sure that this account of what Jesus did that truly changes everything continued to be repeated and carried along. And he wrote in there, in John chapter 20, verse 31, these are written, everything that he wrote about Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He says, I'm writing all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Because John believed something. He believed that the truth about Jesus Christ really does change everything. So the resurrection is powerful. And it changes everything. But does it really matter long term? 
I bet if I went around and asked you, how many times have you been to church? Some of you, oh, I used to go a lot. Not so much anymore. Did you ever receive Jesus? Well, yeah, when I was a kid. Do you believe it? I think sometimes we can think it's a truth for a while. It's a wonderful truth for Easter. It's a wonderful truth for Christmas. But really, the rest of the days, we just have to do our own thing. The disciples realized that the truth of the resurrection was a lasting change. It changed their lives. These guys that were fishermen, or one of them was a tax collector, and various other backgrounds, did you know that they actually rejected Jesus toward the end of his life? They, they, they were scared. They wanted nothing to do with him. They're running away, most of them. But when they saw the resurrected Lord, do you know what happened? Each and every one spent every single day of the rest of their life proclaiming this very truth. Most of them died early and usually awful deaths, constantly being told, if you would quit talking about this or say it's not true, we will let you live. And every single one of them said, no, I cannot stop talking about this. Because the resurrection had changed them. Paul went from persecuting those who believed in Jesus to being one who was persecuted because he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. When the gospel is declared illegal, it continues to spread and grow. When governments try to squash the church, it continues to spread and grow. And it has for the past 2,000 years and will continue to spread and grow until Jesus Christ returns. Nothing has ever nor will ever stop it because it isn't just positive thinking. It is the truth that has changed the world. And it makes a lasting change. Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Man, maybe you're here today. And you feel like you're drowning. You think, I need something to hold on to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the line of hope that has been thrown into our history. And today, I want to tell you, grab on. Grab on to the one thing that will change your life and is changing this world forever and ever. Maybe you're like that boy in the hospital. Maybe you've given up. Maybe you think there's no hope. Hear the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. The hope that changes everything. See the Son of God who died in your place and rose from the grave promising eternal life to all who believe. There is not one situation in your life or in this world that can take that away from you. And I want to end by reading what will happen When the one who rose from the dead returns. Listen to the hope of Revelation 21, 1-7. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful, or as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying 
or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost. From the spring of the water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God and they will be my children. Friends, that is hope. Hope that has changed the world. Hope that is reaching out to, calling out to you today. Don't be like somebody who's choking and says, no, I'm okay. Say yes. I need that hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. That hope is a real hope, a true hope, so much greater than anything we can offer ourselves or each other or anything this world has to offer us. Father, we find ourselves struggling so often because we've grabbed onto something that we think will hold us fast. And then we find out that it's loosening and it fails. And moment after moment, time after time of that happening, we lose hope. And God, we live in a world that has a vacuum of hope today. And yet I pray that those who are here who believe in your son, Jesus Christ, would go out from this place today around dinner tables, at family gatherings, uh, gatherings with friends, both today and tomorrow and the day after, on into eternity, we would proclaim the hope of Jesus Christ that the world may know. Because I truly believe that when people receive your son as their, their savior, they change. And as those people live those changed life, the world gets changed. And I know one day Christ will come back and the world will be forever changed. And it is on that truth that I base my hope. And I pray that all gathered here would as well. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.